Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck nuts? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. WTF, welcome to it. Hope you're doing all right. I uh it's very early. The shooting schedule's got me a little turned upside down, and I got some other things happening in my life that are consuming and overwhelming and taking up a lot of my time. Right off the top here, I do want to thank everyone who's been reading Waiting for the Punch, Words to Live By from the WTF podcast. We're really thrilled with the response. The The book is selling well. It's sweet. And we'll be doing our final Waiting for the Punch event of the year in Seattle, one week from Saturday. Brendan and I will be at Third Place Books in Seward Park, November 11th at 7 p.m. Tickets are available at the store with the purchase of Waiting for the Punch. And if you can't make it and you still want a signed book, you can get one by going to podswag.com slash punch. It's the only site that has official signed copies. That's P-O-D-S-W-A-G dot com slash punch. Wow, man. I forgot about this. I for, I forgot about five in the morning, man. It's like, it's not, it's five in the morning. When I was doing morning radio, it, five in the morning was not an unusual place to be, but I, <laughs> judging by right now, I woke up this morning reali- realizing I had to, to record this, you know, for this show, because I got to go to set and do shoot all day, and it's just, I got to bring my car in. It's early. It is early. I want to read an email. Uh, Hey, Mark, I'm a faithful listener for years and a huge fan of all your work. I'll try to make this short and sweet. I don't want to debate religion, but you've said something twice now in your opening of the podcast that I need to share my opinion on. Most recently, you said it in the Tracy Ullman episode. You said, quote, the evangelicals have made a deal with Satan to pursue their agenda. And Trump is fulfilling that agenda. I'm a Christ follower who has mostly attended non-denominational church as an adult. I do not consider myself evangelical, although I researched what it means to be evangelical, and it's not that far off from my beliefs. I guess I want to make sure you know that just because someone is a believer in the good news, it does not mean that all Christians stand behind Trump or his fellow criminals. I voted for Bernie in the primaries and Hillary in the actual election, so please don't assume that all Christians back Trump. I know you've been raised Jewish, and sometimes you lump all Jewish people into one category and catch flack from fellow Jewish listeners. All I'm doing is reminding you that not all Christians should be lumped into the same category, especially not one so offensive as to state that I want to spend time in the afterlife right now, so I choose Trump to bring forth what is stated in Revelations. 
That's it. Thanks for being my drive to work companion each day. Oh, and if you get the opportunity, you should interview Isa Ray from the HBO show Insecure. She's brilliant and hilarious. Best regards, Nora. We had Isa scheduled, um, and I'm trying to make that happen. That uh, I'll answer that right away. And uh, you're right. Uh, I appreciate your email, but could you get your Christians together to stop the other ones? If there's going to be a war, I wouldn't mind it being between y'all. You dig? Because you know what I'm saying. Shit is real. So, five in the morning. Yeah, morning radio. Reminds me of getting up 2.30 in the morning, get up to get to the studio about 3, 3.30, get jacked up on Dunkin' Donuts coffee and M&M's to get on the air at 6. Yeah, we overworked. We did it. We had to do a lot of uh, detailed and uh, <laughs> significant research every morning to get on the air for Morning Sedition back in the Air America days. But uh, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I'm doing this. I guess I'm just a worker. I don't know what to tell you. Did I tell you who's on the show? I do have a, a, a sort of a, I don't know if it's a hero, but a, a guy I love a lot. Two guys, actually, it turns out. But but John Hammond is on the show, the um, the blues musician. And, and I, I was just excited to meet him and to talk to him because uh, I don't know where I got his one of his records years ago, but I, I couldn't believe it. And he's done like 30 records, and he's always out there touring. It's just him and his uh, a couple of guitars. He's beyond, uh, he's beyond great, and he's a very authentic blues musician, and he does something with the music that, that no one really does. And uh, it was an honor to talk to him, so he'll be here soon. I'll tell you a little story before I, uh, I, I start that interview. And uh, coming up first, before John, Michael Rappaport, uh, wanted to come by to talk, and which is a you know I, when you have Michael Rappaport over, he's got a new book out. It's uh it's called This Book Has Balls: Sports Rants from the MVP of Talking Trash. Uh, you can get that where all books are available. But those of you who are familiar with Michael Rappaport know that a conversation with him is sort of like an amusement park ride. <laughs> you kind of get on, you don't know what's going to happen, and you you just uh, hold on and engage where you can. I always like having him over. So this is me uh, having a little, a short but intense conversation with Michael Rapp. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you get it now wherever you get your podcasts report what the fuck's going on with you are you all right didn't you start some shit recently no what shit i don't know did you uh with trump did you start some shit oh with- start some shit you when you with trump you're finishing shit you're cleaning up shit i didn't start any shit he's like you, <laughs> did know, you know him I mean, in new york 
Did you ever deal I, with him? No, I never. I never dealt with Trump. I seen him around a couple of parties and things like that. But you know, I mean, the thing about Trump in in New York is like we know what the fuck he's all about. We we've seen him out and about chasing skirt and forever. Forever in New York, he's a you know we've yeah. seen him on the corner before they uh, you know they fixed up 40, times 40 times he's a fucking three card money player. That's what he is. <laughs> if you listen to him talk like his Alabama yeah talk last week, that was classic three card Monty Hustle. shuck and jive yeah fucking you know bait and switch shit. That's yeah, that's yeah. what he does. He's brilliant in the same way that uh you know. And not in a good way, and and <laughs> and bad kind of brilliant, you know. And I have to admit, I I do see parts of myself in him. Yeah, that's the difficult thing, right? If you're a little narcissistic, if you're a little bit of a charming asshole, you, yes, you could sort of like I get what he's doing. I get what he's doing, but 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 I'm not the president. <laughs> Yeah, nor no. nor would nor would I I want to be not the yet. president. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not yet. Not yet. Anything's now, fucking now. Anything's possible. If this motherfucker could be president, <laughs> anybody literally can be president. You can. He's lowered the bar on what's acceptable. Oh yeah, in in everything, and so, all across the board. So so you got to help me out because like you know I I got the book. This book has balls. I see. You know it clearly is a sporting theme. Yes, the theme of sports. Yes. Now I as a I am a non-sports Jew. Yes, we, we talk, <laughs> there's many non-sports Jews. Did we talk about this before? We didn't. No, but you're like a full-on sports Jew. I'm a sports Jew. Yeah. I love sports. Yeah, I love sports. Um, and uh, what what is it though? One, one guy said to me once when I when I told him I didn't like sports, he said Frank Santarelli, a comedian, goes, "Well, how do you feel alive?" That's I understand that. <laughs> You never played sports growing up? Sure, I played Little League a little bit. I can hit a ball. I'm a physically fit guy. You look I'm not, fit. Yeah, I'm fit. I can... Uh, well, how do you stay fit? Well, I work out and shit, but I mean, I don't... Competitive sports, I played a little tennis, played some baseball, uh, never basketball. Uh, I can hit a softball pretty good. I mean, I can do it. I swam when I was a kid. But can you smack team. the shit out of... Like, you look like one of those guys who can hit a softball. I can hit a softball. Which is not an easy... I'm not a good softball hitter. Well, you're a basketball player? I like basketball. I, I, could play, I could play ball. I grew up playing ball, but I was never a big... Hit I never the, had that hit, big stick. Not to hit the ball with the stick kind of I guy. Never, I never could hit it far. Uh -huh. You would think because of like my size, Yeah. but there's a technique. I like. I don't have a good stroke, Mark, so you no, must have you. a good stroke. I, I, well, you know, when I do it, I do it. You know, when it, when it, when it, but, you know, there's a lot of misses. There's a lot of, you know... But you're know, like a second baseman. I can like see you in left field making diving... Field. See? Center field. Center field. No, no see, diving. Fat center field kid. Just backing up. There's a lot of backing up. There's no diving. There's no, uh, holy shit, that thing's coming at me too fast. Right. A lot of time. Right. There it is. It's hanging there. Right, I'll right, get right. Under it. The story is, I broke my nose in center field because I fell backing up to catch a, a fly ball. And you fell on your face? I tripped backwards, and it hit me in the face. The ball hit you in your nose. So I had it lined up. But right, that, but that's not a good indicator. You get hit in the face with a ball in center field. You're not a sportsman. If you get hit in the face with a ball in center field, you're not a fucking sportsman. And I could see why. <laughs> but 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 that was just like you know you didn't fight to overcome it. You it wasn't no, any. But I, I could. But I could see why. Because yeah. if I've always had a fear of breaking my nose, because I got a very prominent yeah. Jew nose, yeah. and I'm proud of this fucking yeah. nose, and I don't want anything to happy happen yeah. to it. Right. Like my father's got a nose that makes mine look like. Like like Rob Lowe's nose. Yeah. Well, look, if I take my glasses off, I got... That's I, nice, too. 
Yeah, I got a thing. That's it's, a, it's not as full as yours. You, no. have, you have the full Jew. I have the the, yeah. the Roman Jew. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. You have a Roman Jewish. <laughs> you nose. got the you got a little bulbous going. Yes, yeah. yes. My father's is like you know it's like old school <laughs> ju- dinosaur Jew. He's that kind of <laughs> dinosaur Jew that that won't exist. Yeah, they're almost gone. They're almost gone. Like that generation of Jews. <laughs> yeah, they won't be here. Yeah. You know, and it's it's, it's you know it's they'll sad. be extinct. It's sad. Like with the giant ears. Sure. My father's sure. ears are yeah. probably as big as my cock. Yeah. Like his ears are huge. It's a weird comparison, but I'm, I'm just saying, like they're like they're like you know like eleven inches, like my cock. <laughs> I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but so the book. This book has balls, sports rants from the MVP of talking trash. Who are your teams? New York teams, but but I'm 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 a players guy. Like I love like obviously I love the New York Giants. Yeah. I love the New York Knicks. I'm all fucked up about the Knicks. But 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 I love players, you yeah. know. Like I love different players, like basketball, football, yeah. are are my things. But you know, like I'll go with because the Knicks suck. Like basketball, like I go wherever, <laughs> you know. And I can't stand you LeBron. Had to abandon the Knicks. I had to for my own my own well being and my own health. <laughs> because you get too angry. It's too much. It's a really dysfunctional, abusive relationship, and we deserve better. Yeah, we deserve Wait, better. What's going on? Explain it to me. It's just. The Knicks have not won a championship since 1973. The owner is Trump-like, this yeah. guy James Dolan, and he doesn't give a shit about the fans. He he He's a rich guy whose father was a billionaire, and he was handed Madison Square Garden. He owns a Madison Square Garden? The Knicks, the Rangers, Radio City Musical. He owns like a lot of New York. He's this little guy. Check this out. He's a billionaire yeah. whose father was a billionaire. And he has a blues band. Uh, I, do I need to explain anything else yeah. to you? What's his name again? James Dolan. Uh, He's in a fucking blues band. Yeah, it's no N- good. Not a rock and roll band. A blues band. A fucking blues band. And, and he can play the garden whenever he wants. He, he tours like on a private jet. Like he's has a f- he's a billionaire. That's I mean the, the antithesis of blues music. You know your music. Sure. Yeah. Fucking billionaire no. who owns Madison Square Garden and he was handed it yeah. by his father. Yeah. This the type of motherfucker. So there's just been one mishap of <laughs> handling after another. And they he he doesn't just own the team, which we couldn't blame him. He's he's owns a team and he's made basketball decisions. And you can tell he never even had the the, the life experience of getting hit in the face with a softball in center field that like you did. That was a hard ball. That was a hard ball. A hard ball. Yeah. So I, that but was, he's never even had. You could right, just tell he never. Sure. Just a gilded cage kid, silver spoon. And nothing. he's in a blues band. He's got the balls to like do public shows. <laughs> What's the blues band called? I don't. The billionaire blues band. <laughs> no, I don't fucking on. know. I mean, the, the, to have the balls to be in a blues band, and I mean, you gotta. Have, and he'll talk about it like I understand the blues, and I'm like, no, you don't understand fucking anything. You don't even walk around your, your own city that you own half of. <laughs> So you know the Knicks are <laughs> fucked up, but the book is 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 essentially that it's it's all sports. What you just trans. did, exactly. I mean that would be another. That's for part two, but but it's essentially like it's just you know my frustrations. Um, you know it's not all like you know negative stuff. It's not all like they yeah, suck. Yeah. It's, you know I fell in love with Mary Lou Retton in 1984. Oh yeah. I fell and in love everybody with, with with the gymnast, right? Yes, but I took it to I really fell in love. I went to a, a you know a gym a gymnastics exhibition and I thought like that was going to be like we were going to fall. I was 14, Mark. So don't judge me. I'm not going to judge you. So you so you went to see her on purpose. I no, I went to the garden. I actually went to Madison Square Garden to see her though. To see Mary Lou Retton. And, and and I went I was dressed up <laughs> and I had cologne on and I thought like we're going to Yeah. Yeah, it's going to happen. You're going to connect. And and she saw me 
looking at her, and and God is my fucking witness. Yeah. I said this is what came out of me. I, this has yeah. been like a, a month of preparation, and I my my father, I was like. You know, I gave up my my Christmas presents. I was like, "Can you just?" Because he was like, "What the fuck do you want to go to see gymnastics for? <laughs> what the fuck is it?" Like? Yeah. And I was like, "I want to just go. I want to yeah. go." Like, and he was like, "All right, but that's your Christmas present." I was like, "All right, I'm, I'm on a Saturday by myself in Madison Square Garden, Dressed up in a, in, in a turtleneck and your bar mitzvah suit." And I'm thinking, like, I'm gonna go there, and like Mary Loretta and I are gonna fall in love. And I literally, while she came out, you know, it was like screaming kids. It was screaming kids and One Michael tall, Rappaport, <laughs> like a fucking crazy person. And but I, in my head, I was like, well, she's gonna see me. Yeah, yeah she's it's gonna all come. natural. This is like it's de- destined to happen. Why shouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and 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 I said to her when she got on the the mats, I said, <laughs> I swear to God, me and you, Mary Lou. And she she looked over and I and God is my witness. She said to her brother, who was like her flunky security, guard, that guy looks weird. <laughs> It's just a true story. And I went back to my seat and then left and then walked home to the, in the fall, the fall of Ma- the, the fall, sad of, fall. Of, of New York City by myself. The sad uh, fall, leaves falling down. And then I went home and took down my little shrine I had made for her. No. I, didn't, I didn't rip it because I thought maybe we'd reconnect later, but I put it in my closet and and that was the end. You know, it's you, you know, it's even more amazing to me that if you know if you had the opportunity to meet her now. And just tell her that she'd still be scared. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck! And I, you know, out of all the people I've ever met over the years, I've still never met yeah. Mary Lou Redmond. Like, if you said, "Yeah, I That's got a funny story," <laughs> she'd be like, "That shit's not funny." Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'd be like, "You're making me nervous." That guy now. looks weird to her brother. Oh, so well. it's just shit like that. It's fun, and you know, I mean, whatever happened to her, anyways? I don't know. She's resting her puffy little feet in West Virginia. You know, she she, she did a lot of jumping on those. She'll always be my Amer- my sweetheart. It's funny though; it's a scary moment when you look back on that stuff and you realize you get something in your head. Like I was thinking about the the other day, how much you project, like how much you oh, there's something here. There's got to be something here, right? And you, there's not you don't know anything. There's you're, nothing you're, here. You're making it up. And men do that way more than Always, women. They do it throughout their life. I think I felt something. No, no, they, you just you, you want that to be there. It's not there. Yeah, I, I have a friend of mine. He had a story. I'm not going to name his name. Yeah. He's never been on this podcast. I'm not going to name his name. That narrows it down. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but he I remember he was like, "Yeah, me and this girl were vibing and you know, we were looking at each other in the eyes and you know, I finally went over to her and I was like, you know, how you doing? And she was like, how you doing? And, she, and he was looking at her. He's a, like an eye contact yeah, guy. Like, yeah. you know, like you're, you're, sure. you're, you're having soul connection. Yeah. And he said to her, you, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And she was like, yeah. And then she said, looks like rain, right? And then he was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> but like he thought they had this, you know, like this long standing like eye contact thing. And she was just like, yeah, it's going to fucking rain. You don't right? know what the hell people are no, thinking about. No, especially with women. And when you're young, you're so, so dumb. Yeah. And, and and that was the, at, at 14 that was the beginning of my dumbness. Yeah. At 14 cuz 14 to 25, yeah. 26, you're so dumb. I yeah. was at my prime dumb like at 23. Yeah, that's, well, that's where it happens. That's where the that you know, if you don't <clears throat> if you live through 23, you're going to make it till your 30s. You you you'll but make you're, it there. <laughs> but it's a dumb time. Dumb. Cuz you don't you just try and figure out who you are, right? You can't see outside of arm's length, but yeah. you think you got it all and your yeah. fucking parents are dumb. Yeah. They're dumb. They're dumb yeah. and you have it all figured out at yeah. 19. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm walking around with gonorrhea at 19 and like yeah, I know everything. How'd you get that? I just said uh, one night. It was actually 16. I got that plane. I, I, I got gonorrhea once. Yeah. Once 
uh, in high school when I, I first started having sex and I was having sex with three girls. I had had sex with three girls. Oh, so you made a mess of a lot of people's lives. I, I made a mess. I caught it from somebody, but I was at basketball practice. I might have been 17. I might have even been 18. All right, so somewhere between 16 and 18. Six, it was between 17 and 18 and I was at basketball practice. And you know, this is before they had like compression shorts. You know when you work out now, they have like compression shorts and sure. underarm. This is where you just had tidy whities Yeah. Or a jock strap. Right. And who the fuck wants to wear a jock strap when right. you're 17? So sure. I was in my tidy whities at basketball practice at Martin Luther King High School in New York City. And I, um, you know, was guarding somebody and I, I did I just piss myself? <laughs> and I look and I was like, there was like a little bit of like a green thing. I went to the- A uh, green the, thing? Like, was, yo, gonorrhea. That's that's what it is, Mark. It's green? It's like green, you know, like it's like a little I drip. I've never had it. You're better off, and well, then I, I, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I never once thought like, "Hey, you know, I kind of wish." Looking back on, yeah, it, you but... never had that experience. <laughs> so that was, yeah, but so that was, but only once, and only you, once. Yeah, you, you had to go to the doc. I had to go to the doctor. You had to go to like it's not the nurse; it's like the health room, yeah, and yeah. you go in there, and she's what's like, "What's the on? matter?" And you have to tell seventeen. You know, humiliating that shit is, and then you got to strip in front of a woman who's going to stick a cotton swab in the tip of your loaf, yeah, and. Then she tells you you have it's fucking terrible. Did you ever figure out how, who gave it to you? I, it's just one of one of these two or three women. Did you tell them? Nope. I was seventeen. <laughs> I didn't have the balls to tell them. I mean, uh, it was. I didn't see them again. Yeah. But it was. You know. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. a shameful thing. It is. Sure, it is. But luckily, it wasn't anything. Yeah. You know, anything long gave term. You, they gave you a shot, and that was that. They gave me a. Shot, yes, yeah. but the the, the 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 treatment for it isn't as bad as the sticking the cotton swab, yeah, in there to see what's going on. And as uh, a young seventeen-year-old, yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's embarrassing. I don't even know how we got on. I just admitted I had gonorrhea when I was, and that was nineteen eighty-seven, folks. So the the, yeah. the ramifications yeah, are you 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 were stupid then. Yeah, yeah. So wait, I was going to say you're on you're doing a show, right? I'm on a show now with Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Jason, Jason I haven't Lee. watched. Atypical. People like it. It's a good show on you like, Netflix. You like working with her? I love her. She's great. I had her in here. Not too oh, long did ago. you have her in here? Yeah, it was great. She has good stories, right? Yeah. Well, she's just uh, she's intense. She's a real deal. You yeah, know? but she she's um she's got good stories. She had a great career. Yeah, yeah. Worked with so many people. Um, good actress. Really good actress. Do you, do, are you are you is it you two working together a lot? Yeah, me and her working together. We're in a dysfunctional relationship. Um. You know, and 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 she's just good. You know, like I always, I've always been a fan of hers. Yeah, and like she was like, you know, somebody who did I've think, always. Did you think that? No, no, no. I ne well, when she was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it was either you were into her or Phoebe Cates. Yeah, like it was like one sure. or the other. Which way'd you go? I was into Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah, but I, I mean, I not too. like, not like you know, like I wasn't like not like Mary Lou Retton. Right, and I'll tell her like I love you, Jennifer Jason Lee, but not like Mary Lou Retton. But I will tell you this: <laughs> when I worked with Jennifer Jason Lee, yeah. And we worked together for three months. Every fucking day, the Jackson Brown song, You Got to Be Somebody's Baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's the song she lost her virginity yeah. to in Oh, in Fast, fast Times, right. So every day it said, I'm like, Got to Be. And I'm like, Oh, she must have loved that. I never told her. I was too ashamed of myself. I, and she's cool. And like, I asked her all kinds of stories, but I was like, Every day, I'd be listening to it in my, like, it was like, became my obsessive song because. You play it? I'd play it, I'd play it, I'd sing it. I was like, you got to be some, because that's the song. It was a very sexually charged movie for yeah, a, was, a sure, young. for a kid. But she's always been one of my favorites. Yeah. And um, so yeah, Atypical. And then I got this other show um, that's really fucking good 
that that's coming out on Showtime with Jay Farrell called White Famous, which is nuts. Yeah, what is that? Jamie Foxx used to do this bit. He's an executive producer. He used to do this bit about when he first came to Hollywood, like he had made it to a certain level of fame and success, but he wanted to be called become white famous, like right. crossover. Right. And Jay Farrow is the star of this show, and it's essentially about a young comedian, talented guy who's trying to get big. Crossover, yeah. Big, big, big. Yeah. But it's very provocative in regards to race. Yeah. Um, you know, socially and, and things that go on in Hollywood, but it's really just about a guy trying to find his way and will how much will he compromise or not compromise to reach his dreams. Yeah. But it's fucking nuts. And it's what do a, you play? I play this director who um, is trying to get this young, hot comedian in his show, and the director's like, a f he's just nuts. He, like, you know, m you know, believes in method acting, and, like, it has to be real, and he keeps sort of tricking him and taking him out of his comfort zone, and it's just very now. And even yeah. the title to me, like, I think it's just a great... Like, I would love Donald Trump and all his followers to watch White Famous, because yeah. it's going to drive them fucking insane. Yeah. What did we talk about the last time we were here? Oh, we, with the, was with the Sylvester Stallone, right? Copland. Yeah, Copland. Same type of shit. But what about De Niro? You work with him? Yeah, he's my man. Yeah. I love him. Did we talk about him last time? I mean, we could talk about him. It never gets old. He's fucking Bob De Niro. Yeah. I mean, he's... he. I've never gotten... Like, I've never talked to him about acting. Like, yeah. I've talked to him about New York... And just being around him, like I don't want to be friends with him. Like yeah. it's not like I wouldn't be friends with him, but right. I, I, I revere him and love him so much. Also, why would he want to be? He's a seven-year-old dude. He's Bob De Niro. What the fuck does he want to talk to me about? I but know. Yeah. I literally have been with him and met him. I've worked with him twice. Every time I see him, my heart palpitates. Like every t it races like a girl yeah, at a Michael Jackson concert. I just have so much respect for him and he means so much to me and he's influenced me and inspired me so much. But what are you talking to him about? But what how you doing, Bob? What's going on? Like I mean, when I see him, like he'll kiss me on the cheek. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. And I'm like melting. Yeah. Like fucking Fonzie. You know, like I'm like literally like, you know, like a girl running away yeah, from Fonzie. Yeah, yeah. I just <laughs> I see him all the time at the Tribeca Film Festival. Well, he and, must know. He must get oh, familiar no. with you because you, know, you both grew up in New York. Yeah, we, language. Yeah, no, no totally. Yeah. You know, he's familiar and he he knows I love him and I've done things at the Tribeca Film Festival and I've worked with him twice. But I just there's certain people that mean so much to me that I I don't want to try to break yeah, that. Yeah, right. I just he he's one. Don't want to ruin it in a way. I don't. It's not not that he'll be disappointed. I just adore him so fucking much and 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 now that he's gotten older yeah. i think he's gotten more comfortable with people like me and the adoration that he's gotten for 40 years that has already made a very shy person even more shy yeah but the fact i mean in my opinion like you know what he's done with new york post 9 11 and the the outspokenness that he's taken towards trump mm -hmm. i mean that was one of his best performances when he called him that, a dog yeah. a mutt yeah. a, for him to do that who doesn't talk about anything you know that he's crossed paths with Trump yeah, over the sure. years. This is a guy who's like, he knows this motherfucker's a dog, a mutt, a con, <laughs> yeah. a lie, a cheat. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, fuck yeah, Bob. Tell him what the fuck is up because we all love you. And yeah. we all want to call him a fucking dog, mutt, lie, con, and a fucking cheat. You memorized the monologue. Oh, it's one of his best performances. <laughs> and it was off the cuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> how's, uh, so how's everything you got? How's your kids? Good? My kids are good. They're 15 and 17. They um, are 
completely uninterested in everything I have to say or have to do. You know, it's like that white noise. Really? And now that they have Uber and stuff and one of them's actually driving, it's like they really don't need shit. Because in LA, like, you know, you're like a car, you're a car yeah, service. Sure. A parent. Like, yeah. now it's like, you know, they're at the point where, I mean, when I was 15 and 17, my father was like, yeah. and I lived in New York. You were out getting gonorrhea. I was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I come in, Dad, can I get $5? Dad, can I, you know, you shut yeah. the door, you come in, you come and you right. go. So, that's so that's, you, you know what's up with them, but you, they're good kids. They're good. They're yeah. they're 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 Rappaport's, but they're 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 doing <laughs> th- thus far. You're one of the only guys that can say that, and people are like, oh, okay. You, you know, yeah, yeah. they have tendencies and, and DNA stuff that they can't escape, but they're they're doing better than than I was at at, at seventeen. Yeah, are they in show business? I hope not. Oh, I so mean, it's not hasn't revealed revealed itself. It has, yet? Yeah, it hasn't reared its its ugly head yet. All right, let's we're gonna talk all day. The book, good book. The book has this book has balls, sports rants from the MVP of Talking Trash. I always like talking to you. I love I love talking to you. Keep, you. I, I imagine you could sometimes I feel like, you know, yeah, you, you could be talking and I could be like, I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. This is Michael Rapport hosting the Mark Marin Parry podcast from yeah, Mark exactly. Marin. You do it. You step right up. <laughs> Good seeing you, man. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Michael Rappaport, right? True character, true New York character. His book is called This Book Has Balls, Sports Rants from the MVP of Talking Trash. You can get that where you get books. John Hammond, you know, I thought about this talk that I had with him a lot after I had it. Uh, His father was John Hammond Jr., who was a, a, a very famous uh, A&R guy at Columbia Records, I believe, who signed Billy Holiday, Bob Dylan. He was involved all the way back, seemingly to the beginning of music, but he was Bruce Springsteen he signed. He was a, a sort of ever-present, sort of mythic A&R guy. And John Hammond, the, who I talked to today, is his son. It was not a, you know, a close relationship from what I understand. And I don't know that I really got to the to the core of uh, of John Hammond here, but but what's what's at the core is some real blues, that's for sure, and maybe some of that uh, is is from the the that father and son relationship. I don't know. Maybe you can hear it underneath this conversation. Uh, you know, I'm not one to psychoanalyze. I don't want to talk too much shit, you know, before interviews. Uh, but you know, I found it resonant with me thinking about that, what that relationship must have been like. But my experience with John Hammond as a musician, like I had this one record years ago in high school. I don't even know where I got it. I probably got it from a box of records that they didn't want to play at the record store next to where I uh, made sandwiches at the Posh Bagel on Central across from University of New Mexico next to Budget Records, which uh, dealt in mostly R&B sounds uh, at the time that I got the records. The owners were kind of R&B people, and they had this box of records that they weren't going to play in the store. In that box of records, uh, it, some of them changed my life, certainly Elvis Costello's first record and the John Hammond mileage album. And I just, I never heard anyone play like that. You know, he, he, he plays harmonica, and he plays guitar. Sometimes he plays a resonator guitar, a uh, steel resonator guitar. And he does it simultaneously, and he sings. And um, there's a pace to it. There's an intensity to it. There's something truly unique about the way John Hammond plays and sings. And he's been doing it forever. 
back in the day there were records that he made you know with all different types of bands he made some stuff i didn't realize with you know Dwayne allman uh he you know he did records with um levon helm robbie robertson way back in the day he did uh he had a great combo for a while on source point and they're just a, a, an entire history of music with this guy that goes all the way back to the all the way back to the late 60s but the thing that I was a strange fan because of this one record, Mileage, for years, and I was visiting my brother. For some reason, I was in Tucson, Arizona. My brother was going to school there. I don't remember what year it was. I don't. I, don't, I know I wasn't sober necessarily. I don't know. I can't place it in time, but this is my memory of it. I went there. I was with my brother, and we in the paper or somewhere, we saw that John Hammond was playing at the Tucson Blues Society. I don't even know if that exists or what it is maybe i don't they didn't have their own venue but i remember going to a small space didn't feel like a performance space it felt like a bar and it was me and my friend laura madden uh who was living in tucson at the time and my brother and we went into this room and there was no opening act no nothing and from what i recall was maybe 40 people and i don't know how they brought him out or why it must have been a bar i don't know but I'd never seen John Hammond, and I'd never seen anything like this. You know, he came out with a national resonator guitar. And this is my recollection. And he, he, he did Robert Johnson's Hellhound, Hellhounds on My Trail. And that's a tricky song because it's, you know, kind of not a full song. It's sort of a meditation it's sort of a, a haunted thing that that bit and he just summoned the spirit of the history of blues and it all came out of him the authenticity of his particular type of singing and his presence and the immediacy of what he does is, is mind-blowing he didn't want to play when when i had him over i don't know why but it doesn't matter uh, you can go listen to him I, it would have been great, but it didn't happen. But the, when he played Hellhounds on My Trail, and I saw that that night in 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 Tucson, Arizona, for forty people, this this blues wizard, I it just changed everything I understood or knew about the blues and made it very personal and very immediate and and very and he was just a portal to the pain that has always existed in humanity and in that music, and for those reasons. For those reasons. What reasons? All the reasons. Anyways, I went and saw him down here at McCabe's, and he was just as amazing as ever. Uh, his, I met his wife, and they just traveled together, just him and her in the dressing room, and uh, it was great. It was a, it was a real, it was, it was very exciting for me. I wanted to share my excitement about John Hammond with you folks, and maybe you go listen to some John Hammond music. Uh, he's going to be in the New York City area, Tomorrow night, Friday, November 4th, at the Town Crier in Beacon, New York. And I would go see him, if you could. This is me and the amazing John Hammond. Ashgrove is one of the great clubs ever. Yeah, it was out here? Yeah, um, uh, 8162 Melrose. Oh, I know. I think I heard someone else told me about that place. Became a comedy club. Yeah, the improv. Yes, exactly. And, and back in the day, it was like they had all kinds of music, it right? It was the best. It was like, a, a, but not just blues, everything. Everything. Bluegrass, 
jazz, poetry. That's what became the improv. That's yeah. crazy. Back I, in the day, Cheech yeah. and Chong were a folk duo. Yeah. They did songs, uh-huh. you know, and uh, between songs they had this patter yeah. that became so hysterical the audience didn't want to hear the music anymore. Is that what happened? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're both really good guitar players. and uh, Well, I know that Tommy was a songwriter and part of an R&B yeah, yeah, outfit, that, Canadian R&B yeah, outfit. I think from Vancouver. Yeah, he's from Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and Rich Marin, uh, he lived not far from the Ash Grove. Uh-huh. And they used to come hear me play. And uh, when they hit with their, Comedy, sing, with, yeah. with, with their record, they yeah. said, how'd you like to go on tour with us? So I opened <laughs> for them for a bunch of times and... Uh, all through the Midwest uh-huh. on little chartered planes. On that and first stuff. record, yeah. Oh man. They, they were, were huge. So, oh, they were they were so funny. I mean, genuinely funny. Really yeah. They cool were in guys. here together, oh. you know, not long ago, a few years ago. And and they were in and out, you know, uh as friends, but they're very close no matter what. Yeah. But to hear them both on mic in my oh, head <laughs> just talking, I was like, <laughs> Oh shit, that's a G. <laughs> I know it's wild. <laughs> yeah, they were great. Yeah. Well, like where I first, I think the first record I had of yours, like I'm 54. I just turned 54 yesterday, and I somehow I don't remember how Happy I got. Birthday. Well, thank Ooh. you very much. But like I've always been sort of a, a blues freak since I was a kid because uh-huh. someone turned me onto it. But I, the first record I got of yours was Mileage. Mileage. Wow. Yeah, and I don't know where it came from in my back, but I had it in high school. And that, you know, uh, uh, Riding in the Moonlight? Yeah. That guitar on that? Uh-huh. It just killed me, man. Ooh. That album's great. And it, that, but that was the door in, right? And then, you know, as I get older, I realize, well, he's done 100 records. <laughs> There's a lot of <laughs> a records. A lot of records. Huh? And then I kind of, I, I just, like, just the other day, I picked up one, uh, which, oh, what's it called? It was the one where I look at the back, I had no idea, 67, maybe the fourth record. And uh, I'm looking at the players. And it's Robbie Robertson, yep. Levon Helm, uh, uh, Bloomfield on piano. Right. Charlie Musselwhite's first recording yeah, session. Playing, oh, was it really? Yeah. Oh, he's a hell of a hard player. He's oh, still around, right? Oh, yeah. He's doing better than ever. Oh, yeah? He's oh, up in yeah. the Bay Area? He's up in, well, north of the Bay Area. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he's he's doing some touring, I think, with Ben Harper. Okay. And, All right. Uh, he's he's doing really well. He was with Cindy Lauper on her... No blues kidding. adventure. No kidding. She yeah. did a blues adventure. Yep, she did. <laughs> what is? What is that? No, give me a break. What, what does that mean? <laughs> so, which one? What that? Oh, that's so many roads, right? So many roads, right? Nineteen sixty-four. But like you're like you've been, and, I, and then I saw you. I saw you. This is weird because it was a pretty big moment for me. I was visiting my brother in Tucson. In Tucson, yeah. And you were like at the Tucson Blues Society. Uh huh. Something like that. And, and I was in town. I'm like, that can't be. What, he's just going to be here? And it, there must have been like 40 people there. Yeah. And But the thing was was amazing, though. You played Hellhounds, and you just summoned the thing. I mean, that I, I don't, I've never heard, like, because when you listen to the Robert Johnson records, you can't picture that stuff being activated mm. in the sense of being live, but you did it. <laughs> I, do, I do so many Robert Johnson songs. Yeah. What did, was that a relationship that, in terms of your relationship with that music, did that come later, or was that there at the beginning? It was there in the beginning. I, I, I first heard Robert Johnson on a, a a Folkways album called The Country Blues. Yeah, that Sam Charters produced. Yeah, or well, he, it was out of his collection. I'm yeah. sure. And uh, and there was just one cut and. 
who is this guy? You know, so yeah. I made it. A, what cut was it? Uh, but, um, preaching blues. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, it became a quest to find out if he had recorded other things. Nobody seemed to know anything about it. Were him. you playing already? No, I was just a fan. Like, how old were you when you first heard that? Oh, sixteen. Uh huh. Uh huh. And um, so I, I found two other cuts of his on a origin of jazz library i think it was swedish label or something isn't that wild and uh found two more so they hadn't put it all out they hadn't put that collection out yet no no see I, my my dad was responsible for that see i didn't really grow up with my dad john I, hammond senior yeah the... I, I knew him on occasion you know from you know a weekend certain weekends yeah. uh, two weeks in the summer that kind of deal and but uh, he he's he signed billy holiday oh. right dylan springsteen all of them but you didn't you weren't hanging That's out another, there no no i didn't hang out with him so yeah. one day i was up at his house yeah and i said dad have you ever heard of a guy named robert johnson he said funny you should ask <laughs> and then he was trying to get him to play at his spirituals to swing concert uh -huh. in 1938 yeah and he had tracked him down and found out he had died. Ooh. Yeah. So he said, not only that, and he opens his, his cabinet. Yeah. And he had four Robert Johnson the, records. The 78s? On Vocalion. Yeah. 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 Oh, my God. Yeah. It was like a treasure trove. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe it. It yeah. was like I felt the hair stand on my neck kind of. Yeah, yeah. And he introduced me to this guy in Columbia who was in charge of the archives named Frank Driggs. Your dad and, did. Yeah. Yeah. And Frank made me a, a tape, a reel to reel tape of like twelve Robert Johnson songs. Oh my god. It was god. like I died and gone to heaven kind yeah. of and it was just unbelievable. And uh, So you were sixteen about. Uh, no, I was seventeen by then. Yeah. Uh the album was released in nineteen sixty. Yeah. I Those think. thirty songs or however many. No, there, there weren't that many. There right. was like twelve, I think. And that was it. And that was it. Well, there were others. There were outtakes and yeah. stuff, but but though that the the king of the of the Delta, Delta Blues, Blues was yeah. that 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 album. Yeah. And um, not long after that, I started playing guitar. Your old man put that out. He did. He produced yeah. it, and uh, and F Frank Driggs was the guy who who engineered it and you know made it sound really so, good. So that was your moment. <clears throat> that was the, that was a moment. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean, I was a blues fanatic at that point. You know, I was into uh, you know Blind Boy Fuller, yeah. Blind Blind Willie McTell, all the the country blues guys. Who was the uh, guy that lived in New York that Top Romberg had to play? Which one was that? Maybe Reverend Gary Davis. Yeah, yeah. yeah Reverend, Reverend Gary, Gary Day Davis. Yeah. yeah. I mean, pff, he was he was in the Bronx. Yeah. I went to his house once. You did too? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Yorma Kalkinen was like a real fan of his uh -huh. too. Uh -huh. There was, I went to school at uh, Antioch College in yeah. Ohio. And uh, Yorma Kalkinen was, was a student there, older than me by a year. Uh -huh. And... Um, and he and this guy named Ian Buchanan were the guitar players. Uh -huh. and, they, and Ian Buchanan was like a really great guitar player and a good singer, too. Yeah. He was very shy. Yeah. Uh, so he never really got a career going for himself, but he was really phenomenal. And uh, Yorma was hanging out with him all the time. Uh -huh. He played a lot of Blind Boy Fuller stuff and a lot of that Piedmont style. Uh, yeah. I used to watch them play and say, oh, 
holy shit. You know, <laughs> I got to get to work. And you were playing at that point? I had just bought a guitar, and uh, I was too shy to ask anybody to show me anything, but I watched, and I picked up stuff, and... Oh, 1961 is when I started to really get intensely into it. So you grew up in New York City? I grew up in New York City. I went to art school in uh, Skowhegan, Maine. Uh-huh. And I your folks weren't painter. together? No, no. I, I grew up with my mother and my brother, Jason. Yeah. And um, in, in, the, the, in the village. Oh, yeah. And um, so I watched the whole village scene. What did you, know, you go to art school evolved. for? I was a painter and a sculptor. That's what I did. That's what I was good at. Everything else when was When you were a kid. Weird. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, so I got into this like very prestigious art school. Yeah. One of my roommates was uh, a guy named David Getz. Yeah. And David, uh, you know, was a really good painter. Yeah. One of the teachers there was uh, Alex Katz. Oh, sure. Yeah. Hey, I know hey, his work. Yeah. Talk like this. He's from Brooklyn. Yeah. You know? yeah. And he says, I'm a painter. <laughs> <laughs> Not a painter, a painter. <laughs> he was such a character and such a phenomenal painter and a good teacher. Uh-huh. Uh, David Getz was uh, one of my roommates, and I, I had a, a collection of 45s, yeah. you know. And they, everybody wanted my records, you know, so we'd, there'd be parties. And yeah. I, I was 17. I was the, the youngest student ever there. Uh-huh. And all these guys were like... Uh, uh, scholarship guys from uh-huh. really well-known art schools and stuff and uh and you were this kid and so yeah i was the, <laughs> the kid yeah and david uh after skowhegan he he went to the san, san francisco school of fine arts and uh, he loved to play drums and uh-huh. stuff so he was always fooling around and stuff. yeah well he put together big brother and the holding company no kidding he was the drummer <laughs> yeah he was the one who got janice joplin and stuff <laughs> And it's a small world, you know. It, well, it was then. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if it's small anymore. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it's certainly like that's always fascinates me about the scene. Yeah. Because like, you know, you're only like the folk scene was rock and roll officially starts in 57 and the folk scene was even more intimate. And so, there, you know, it all you, you were there at the beginning at, yeah. at that, that well, stuff. So it all happened. So why would you why would you give a painting? Uh, because I, once I had that guitar and started to sing those songs that I loved, uh, I just, that's all I wanted to do. It's like I found my calling. So you, you start playing guitar at what age? 61. I was uh, 18. That's late. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. But I knew all the songs. I knew all the words. Because uh, you've been listening to the blues for right, so long. Right. And wandering really, around the village. Yes, and... Yeah. Were you going to see those guys before you started playing? I saw Josh White and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, uh, Lead Belly once. But when I was seven, yeah, my father took took me to hear Big Bill Brunzi. Oh, yeah. I was... This is uh, 1949. Wow. And Big Bill was unbelievable. And my father knew him. Yeah. And uh, so he introduced me to him, and I was awed. I, I think that was the point at which I... I knew that blues was in me somehow because, I mean, I really connected to that music. And, uh, it really is in you. <laughs> I guess after 55 years on the road, I guess. Uh, <laughs> no, but like even at the beginning, I mean, yeah. your feel for it is insane. I mean, I no one plays like you and, no one, and the depth of it, because that's the experience I had listening to Hellhounds when you sat there with that national guitar mm. in, you know, in a small room with 40, 50 people in it. And you, you, it was like you, you know, you brought that thing to life. Yeah. And it's a dark bit of business. Oh, yeah. 
No, I mean, I was into it completely. I, I, you know, I think that club was called Terry and Zeke's Friendly Bar. In Tucson? In Tucson. And there was a, a great DJ called Kid Squid. Uh-huh. And Kid Squid had this great collection of records. I mean, all kind of stuff. Yeah. From blues to, you know, funky R&B to... Uh, uh, a lot of uh, rockabilly stuff. Uh-huh. You know? I mean, he was the best DJ I ever heard, and he made me up some cassettes for the road, you know. Oh, yeah? Oh, they were phenomenal. Oh, that's sweet. In 1961, you know, I, I made a trek to Chicago hoping to see Muddy Waters or Howling yeah, Wolf, yeah, somebody. Yeah, yeah, And I met Michael Bloomfield and Charlie Musselwhite, and uh, they took me all around to all these these clubs and yeah. I got to see Wolf and Muddy and no kidding and not only was Michael a great guitar player yeah Muddy and Wolf would call him up to sit in on the bandstand like and no shit god he was 17 and I was 18 and he was just amazing and you just met him you just found him at, at the University hanging. of Chicago there was a, a folk festival oh, okay on and uh and you went, and you went to see it? No, yeah, I went. I didn't know Chicago at yeah. all, and then I met Michael and them, and they showed me around. And Charlie was a kid too. Charlie was a kid too. If you turned sideways, you couldn't see him. He oh, was really? String bean, lanky. Oh yeah. So that was before Bloomfield was playing with anybody. That's before he was playing with anybody with uh, but, Paul Butterfield, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, Paul and Michael had a kind of love hate relationship. Uh, Wasn't he in the band Paul, or no? Oh, he, yeah, right. he was First eventually, couple, yeah. but. But um, the w- way it turned out was that, you know, Paul wanted to be the guy. Yeah. Uh, he he had El- Elvin Bishop playing guitar with him. Right. And he wouldn't let Elvin take a solo. But he's a harmonica player. Uh, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. He took all the solos. So no guitar <laughs> solos. Just all, oh, no, I get it. Yeah, right. Yeah, just, I get uh, it. Just in the pocket. Man. No kidding. <laughs> so Electra Records... Uh, Said the only way we'll we'll record you, Paul, is if you have a, a lead guitar player, and it's got to be Michael Bloomfield. <laughs> Ooh, and I don't think Paul was very happy about that. Mm. But they made some great records. And, they did, uh, and, and then and Bloomfield went on to play with Dylan in those seminal sort of uh, first electric. I introduced things. him to Dylan. You did. I, I introduced <laughs> the band. Come on. to Dylan. D- yeah. D- Dylan and I were really good friends. You know when. When Bob first moved to New York, Uh there were three guys, uh, Kerner, Ray, and Glover, and they were from Minneapolis. Yeah. And they were hanging out in New York playing gigs at at coffee houses, and they were really good. Yeah. Uh, Dave Ray played a 12-string guitar. Uh Uh-huh. John Kerner played six-string, and Tony Glover played harmonica, Uh and, and they were just wonderful. Yeah. And when... Dylan came to New York. They introduced me to Bob, and, uh, and oh, because they were from Minneapolis. Yeah, and, yeah. From back and, and, and we got along really well right off the bat. And Bob was, you know, like a, a Woody Guthrie guy. Yeah, know? he had talking blues and uh-huh. stuff that were, and he was fantastic. I mean, what a great solo man! That guy could really grab you. You know, yeah. Was he hanging so, out with Ramblin' Jack then? Oh yeah, he knew yeah. Jack. Every the whole folk scene was yeah. so intense. Dave Van Ronk and all all these great players in New York. I mean And you were, were in it too? Oh yeah, I was hanging, I was there. And now, what year was this? Nineteen sixty one and two. So you're you're playing out now. Yeah, I'm playing in little clubs uh, the the past your hat 
coffee houses. Uh, but not like Cafe Wa or... The cafe, well, the Cafe Wa didn't come until a little later. Okay. But there were others, the Fat Black Pussycat uh-huh. and uh, all these joints. And um, me and Dylan, uh, Richie Havens. Oh, yeah, yeah. John Sebastian. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy who called himself Juan Moreno. I think his name was... Uh, uh, Peter Cohen, <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah, he played flamenco style. Uh-huh. Oh, there was a scene. It was yeah. a really a great scene. It was intense. And this is before it blew up. This is like as this it was. This is sixty one, early sixty two. And there was that one record store or uh, that had uh, the that Folklore was, Center. Yeah. That, oh yeah. It was like the headquarters. Izzy Young, Izzy Young yeah. ran the whole thing. Uh, Dave Van Ronk was like the mayor of, I right. mean, he knew everybody, anybody coming through that played a, a little blues or whatever mm-hmm. would hang out with Dave Van Ronk. And then those old blues guys got integrated into this scene, correct? Later. Wait, oh, it was later. Later. So you meet Dylan and you meet the guys from the band. No, 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 no. Okay. I was playing gigs yeah. starting 62. My, okay. my, my career, I, I, I came to Los Angeles in March of 62. Really? And I started my whole career here. No kidding. I went as far away from home as I could get and yeah. uh, made myself up and was playing at the Ash Grove and the, the Troubadour. You moved here? I moved here, yeah. I I was ready to be somebody else, you know. I, yeah. I wanted to be John Hammond, the blues singer. Not John Hammond, the... The kid of the guy. Nah, right. I mean, <laughs> the, the lots of luck with that. From the neighborhood. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or the but painter. But anyway, anyway yeah. I was out here for about eight months. Uh, I got my first gig through Hoyt Axton. Oh, yeah. Hoyt was just the greatest guy. Oh, man. What a what a, a wonderful human being. And yeah. he got me my first paying gig in yeah. Southgate, the Satire Club. Frank and Joyce Thompson owned this place, and it was wonderful. Uh-huh. From there, I played at the Insomniac. Where was Bob that? Bob Hare. That was in Hermosa Beach. Oh, wow. Oh, and these were paying gigs. I and got you're with a band or just there. on the guitar? No, I was just playing solo. I, yeah. That was how, to me, that was the art. If, if, if you could pull it off as a solo, that was like being Robert Johnson or Willie McTell or right. Blind Boy Full. That was the thing for me. So anyway, I worked all these gigs out here. This Who are you is, working with? Who's on the shows with you? Oh God, I was so many. Um, I played at the at the Ash Grove yeah. as an audition yeah. for opening for the Staple Singers. Oh, and that was they were awesome. They were just uh, pops on guitar, uh, Roebuck Staples, uh, Mavis, Purvis, and Cleotha. I saw you open for them, I think, at the bottom line. Yeah. Like maybe a decade ago or yeah, so. Yeah, Is that possible? Right. That's very possible. And I remember- I wa- a lot of shows. With I remember watching you and I saw a string pop in the yeah. second song and I was like, oh, God damn it. Now I, he's got to deal with that. I can change it in 20 seconds. <laughs> no problem. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So, the uh, staples and- just, And pop staples, you know, I, I, I played my little set and he came up to me and said, son, yeah. I don't know how in the world you learned to play like that. But whatever you do, don't stop. And it just filled me with a whole room. You know, I mean, I just yeah. knew this was, you yeah. know, it was going to happen. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's amazing. I got to meet all these these players out here. I got, I started to work often at the at the Ashgrove. Yeah, the Ashgrove was the greatest club. I worked shows there with Lightning Hopkins, with Doc Watson. 
Oh, yeah, uh, Taj said he used to be a door guy there. Yeah, he was. <laughs> That's who it was. Taj moved here from Boston. <laughs> yeah. And and Taj, like, uh, put together the Rising Suns. They, they were so good. Oh, yeah. That first record? Oh. Yeah. Um, that sounds like a chess I mean, record. I mean, Ry Cooter. Oh, yeah. And Jesse Ed Davis. Oh, my God. These guys could really play. And Taj was a great harmonica player and a great guitar player. He was... The real deal. And you said you opened for Wolf? Yeah, I opened for Wolf at the Ashgrove for a week. Oh. It was incredible. With the whole, his whole band with Hubert and the guys? Yeah, Hubert, the whole package. Wow. And uh, and Wolf told me stories and stuff. I mean, he was really nice to me. I yeah. mean, he really thought I could play. And uh, You can play. But you were like 22? I was less. I was maybe 20, 21. And you were still, it was just you and the guitar? Yes, that's all I aspired and then I, you know, I came back to New York, and I got, I audi- auditioned at Gertie's Folk City, which mm-hmm. was the club in mm-hmm. New York, and uh, I got the gig. And I, me and Phil Oaks played for a week, and were held over for a week. Wow! And we both got signed up to Vanguard Records. Vanguard. I've yeah. been playing for less than a year professionally, and I had my first recording deal. And I knew Bob really well at the time. And I, Bob Dylan. Bob, yeah. yeah. Bob was the guy. You still talk to him? No. Not really? No, Bob is, you know. In, <laughs> He's off in Bob land. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, you know, yeah. he was just, he, I, I, I think he's incredible. Sure, yeah. And anyway, uh, I, I was playing gigs. I got a, a manager and an agent in 63, Manny Greenhill, Folklore Productions. Oh, yeah. And I got all these gigs in Canada, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. Really? Did they like you better up there or something? No, just there was a folk scene that oh, was yeah. happening. There was a circuit. So this is still before the blues folded in? Or around the same time, where well, the old blue, the guy. Sixty three. I, I was playing gigs in Toronto, and a, a guy came backstage after yeah. one of my shows and said, "Hey, listen, there's a band playing in town at the Concord Tavern. You got to come check them out." Yeah. So it was Levon and the Hawks. Yeah. And uh, they were incredible. Yeah. And Robbie was like so intense, such a great guitar player, and Levon could sing his ass off. And they had a piano player named. R- Richard Manuel, uh-huh. and he was phenomenal. Yeah, and he could sing too. Yeah, I yeah. mean, they were great. So anyway, they would call me up and sit in, and and we became really good friends. You'd go sit in with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, they w- would come down. See, they were the backup band for Ronnie Hawkins. Ronnie Hawkins. And yeah, they yeah. Left Ronnie and went out on their own, but played a lot of the same gigs that uh, Ronnie played when uh-huh. he came to the U.S. So they'd come down to Jersey Shore. Uh, Tony Mart was one of the clubs they played, and Joey D's Starlighter Lounge. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'd come and sit, sit in with them and stuff. And and one day they they were you're know, trying to get a, a a recording deal in yeah. New York, and it wasn't happening. I was already signed to Vanguard. So I said, well, how would you guys like to play with me on a record? Yeah. I said, sure. What the heck? And yeah. So I invited Bob to the session and Michael Bloomfield and uh, Charlie were in town that week and we had one session that's three hours and we made that whole album in that three one hours. That, in so many roads so many roads in three hours yeah v- Vanguard thought that they were kind of scruffy oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, but anyway, I mean, it came out real good. I introduced everybody record. to Dylan. Yeah. The next thing I know, uh, Robbie and Levon are playing with Dylan. You know. And wow. It's like, uh, so I'd introduced them all to Dylan, who used everybody. He used Michael yeah. Bloomfield. He, I mean, Bob and I were really good friends, and he he really respected where I came from. And uh, well, it was probably too because that wasn't really his world. And, and you know, like he was a blues fan, though. Right. Oh, of course. Always. Right. But, but he uh, he really built the folk thing. That's right. Yeah. So when he broke out, it was monumental. <laughs> and it was it was a it was a smart next step. You know, the blues. It was his blues. thing. Yeah. It was his thing. He he really uh, he had the vision, and he. Did I talked it. to Robbie. You did well. I have. You, and oh, they, they, when he talks about that tour, he was like, "Oh my God, they're just getting booed off stage oh, everywhere." It, was, and he, it he, must have been unbelievable. He, I can't imagine how, how. And then he wanted to do more. Yeah, you know. And if if he hadn't sadly had that motorcycle accident, the band might not ever happen. I know. Tell me about it, man. It's it's wild. wow. It's yeah. too much. So what? So the first three records you just dumped all at once. They all came out in '64. Your first three? No, 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 no. My 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 f- first album I recorded in December of '62. Okay, it was released that, oh, that all right. summer. Yeah, and then I went into the s- studio again that fall. I made Big City Blues. Yeah, um, and then the next year I made uh, an album called Country Blues, which right. is um, I, yeah, I also to that acoustic this morning. solo. Yeah, and then um, that fall, I mean. It was, I think, November or so of '64. Uh, we we did the So Many Roads album, yeah. and um, then Robbie and I yeah. went up to the Brill Building, uh-huh. Tin Pan Alley, yeah. into Lieber and Stoller's office. He did, yeah. And we talked them into g- 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 giving us a session to to do a demo single. Uh huh. And uh, they had a studio. The, the Rolling Stones were in town, uh-huh. and they'd come to hear me play the year before. The Stones, yeah. yeah. So Brian Jones and Bill Wyman came to the recording date. I got Bill to play bass on it, yeah, um, and Rick Danko. Ah, and uh, they had a, a, dr- dr- a studio drummer named Charles Otis from New Orleans, yeah. who had had come up on uh, Lieber and Stoller's request. Uh-huh. And um, so we we were going to make two sides, right? Yeah. And we had a three-hour session, and we cut like 18 songs. No and, kidding. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and that's- uh, It became I Can I Tell. I Can Tell, right. Yeah. Danko's on that record? Yeah. And, and Bill Wyman. Uh, I told Brian Jones, I'm sorry, I'm playing harmonica. Okay. So, <laughs> and Robbie played as good as I ever heard anybody play guitar on that, man. He just killed me. Oh, man. I mean, Robbie, when he wanted to play blues, he played blues. He can, right? It always shocked me when, when he started playing, you know, more folk style yeah. stuff. But I guess that's, you know... Well, uh, Dylan's influence. Sure. Well, he cut his teeth and you know, real roadhouse shit. Like, oh, right? yeah. I mean, they had to deliver. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time with those guys in yeah. Toronto. You know, I mean, um, I've been to uh, Robbie's home. I met his mother. Yeah. You know, we, I mean, it was a very tight knit scene. And, uh, That's sweet. And Toronto had so many great players. You know, oh, man, Toronto was a real really? scene. Like Man, who? They, like who? Uh, uh-huh. David Clayton Thomas. Oh, yeah, had, yeah. had a band called Powerhouse. Yeah. And they were phenomenal. Mm. Um it's just like a lot of people doing it up there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Were you a fan of, like, uh, uh, the, the British guys? 
not really, not in the beginning, but when the Stones came to hear me play and I got to know Brian Jones, and I, Brian was a blues fanatic just like me, uh-huh. you know, he was into it. And uh, if he had lived, I suppose the, they'd still be, you know, doing a whole lot more blues. Was that like 65, 66? 64 oh, and yeah. 5. Oh, that, so that, early that, That's when I knew them, yeah. And anyway... Because um, they were a real blues band. That's oh, what they wanted. yeah. I was on shows with uh, Fleetwood Mac. Peter Green. Oh, man. Oh, I was on shows best. with them, and I heard them playing. I said, oh, this yeah. is a blues band. No kidding. And the dude. next thing I know, they're doing rock and roll. and Well, he kind of spun out somehow. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. Listen, that, but his, I, I don't want to get into, you know, I don't. Sure, I sure. didn't know everybody that well, so, so I didn't but know. But he was a hell of a player, though, huh? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. And Jeremy Spencer. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, Man, these guys were into it big yeah. time. They were great. Blues fanatics. Yeah. That was the thing. That was that's the thing, really, wasn't it? Eric Clapton. I, I did my first tour in England in '65. Yeah, I went over there, you know, not knowing much. Yeah, uh, about the scene, and I met everybody. I went on tour with everybody John Mayall. Oh yeah, and I met Eric Clapton, who was playing guitar with him, and uh, Eric was just. You know, phenomenal. I mean, his idol was uh, Freddie King. Freddie King, yeah. And he he had that down. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he is also, like, brilliant. You know, I mean, he he had that upper vision, I guess. Uh-huh. He really knew what he was all about. And that I was met, when he was playing with the Blues Breakers? Yeah, the Blues yeah. Breakers. Yeah. And I met uh, Stevie Winwood. And, uh, I mean, these guys were really great players. I met Georgie Fame. There was a guy named Graham Bond, who, yeah. the Atomic Bond. Yeah, was he played <laughs> he played the organ and the saxophone at the same time. Sure, yeah. He was nuts, man. This guy was out there. Yeah, uh, I was over in England, and Bob came and played his first show. Yeah, in England, and invited me to the Royal Albert Hall to hear him play, and it was he killed it with the band. Oh no, just no, by himself. By himself oh, before, yeah. Joan Baez oh, was yeah. there. Oh, oh my, it was, and I was. Hanging out in the back, and he, everything was being filmed by yeah. uh, the Penny Bakers and yeah. whatever it was. Oh, that's and that was tour, big, the Don't Look Back tour, right, right when the, from the movie. Right. Uh, and, and then after the show, there was yeah. this big party, and there were the Beatles. Come on. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> John Lennon walks up to me, and he says, Dr. Kildare. And I said, no. He says, I know. He said, uh, he said how would you like to... Uh, drive around Hyde Park in my Rolls Royce. Oh. I said, okay. <laughs> and we drove around, and <laughs> yeah. and it was yeah. really cool, yeah, really yeah, cool. Uh-huh. And I um, mean, John Lennon was something else, man. Sweet guy. Was, and, oh, God, funny, right? So great, and funny and brilliant, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I felt intimidated, honestly. Yeah. But you had a good time. Oh, man. Yeah. So anyway, I went back to the U.S. and all full of myself, you know, and... Uh, I was 65, and 66, I was uh, hanging out in the village playing at the Gaslight, yeah. and, um, and uh, I mean, it seems like so much happens yeah. in a short time when you're happening, you yeah. know, and uh, yeah. um, I, I was playing at the Gaslight, yeah. a, f- a friend of mine, uh, Ben Affelbaum, yeah. came down and said, man, there's a guy playing across the street at the Cafe Wa. <laughs> he's playing stuff <laughs> off your record. I said, ooh. <laughs> so I went over between sets, and yeah. it was Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. He called himself Jimmy James at the uh-huh. time. And, yeah. And he was hanging out, and when he got done playing, I was introduced to him, and he said, man, I'm starving. Can you get me a gig? <laughs> yeah. 
So I'd played a um, a show at a, a place called the Cafe Ogogo. Uh-huh. And Howard Solomon was the owner, and uh, so I went over to Howard the next day, and I said, you know, if I put a band together, yeah, um, he said I got an opening next week. So I put this little band together with J- <laughs> Jimmy James playing lead guitar. <laughs> Come on. I think every musician that was in New York came to the show. It was for, we were there for a week. Because of, of uh, just they knew about you guys? Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, man, Jimmy was unbelievable. He, oh, could, he oh, played with his teeth. He was just awesome. Was this like in before the Isley Brothers? Or like hadn't he played with them a little bit? Or after, after the Isley Brothers. Okay. He, he'd, been, he'd been on the road with Curtis Knight. Right. And he was fired uh-huh. from the band for in being New too York. Good? In New York. Uh-huh. Yeah, probably. Upstaging yeah. him. And... Um, so he was just hanging out in New York. He was kind of stranded. And, uh, so you put a band together. I put the band Who's together. Who's playing bass? Uh, oh, God. There was so many guys sat in with oh, us. Oh, really? Uh, just an ongoing sort of yes, like parade? Yes, it, it, it was great, though. Um, Were you playing electric? Yeah, I was playing electric. And uh, at the end of the week, Chaz Chandler from The Animals yeah. came up to jimmy and said yeah. you know i mean i'm gonna keep, i'd love to record you here's money for a plane ticket to england i'll record you and i'll put you on the uh-huh. map and um he went to, and that to was england, it and that was it man <laughs> that was it. oh man but when what you when you guys were playing together at that time could you just tell that he was beyond oh, anybody that heard him play would just say who is that yeah what is going uh, on no he was unbelievable he was truly amazing and uh anybody that heard him would flip out and what did you ever see uh, or work with jimmy reed jimmy reed yeah yeah because he oh. lived a while right oh he was incredible yeah he was the guy everybody loved him uh jazz guys loved yeah. him, bluegrass guys country guys everybody loved jimmy reed yeah so i opened for him in uh in oakland a guy named chris schrackwitz put together this concert and uh, yeah i opened for jimmy reed it was just awesome were you and you were a fan right oh i was just like idolized him anyways i I got back to new york eventually and i told my friends you know i was on the show with jimmy yeah yeah they said right Uh uh uh-huh yeah (laughs) yeah, after a while i got you know i i you know i I got tired of being told i was wrong yeah and um so I, i like to tell this story about uh 12 years ago, Martin Scorsese put on uh, uh-huh. the Year of the Blues Spectacular, uh-huh. Radio City Music Hall, yeah. 50 artists, count them. And uh, there were two days of rehearsals. Yeah. My wife, Marl, and I are backstage, and uh, John Fogarty walks up to me. He says, man, I saw you open for Jimmy Reed. <laughs> Whoa. It's like, yeah. No, it was really, it was really cool. Because he's from up there. Yeah, man. <laughs> he's probably a kid who went to go see it. <sighs> Oh, man. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of moments like that where, you know, it all yeah. sort of comes together. Right, right. So when did you start doing the, uh, you know, because like I noticed on, like, you go back and forth, but like Source Point, that's 1970 already, right? And oh, you did on the on the other records too, but you put together a okay. full electric band. In 1967, yeah. after I had had the experience playing with Jimmy, yeah. uh, 
I approached Charles Otis, who had recorded on the I Can Tell record, uh-huh. and I said, "If I would you be interested in going on the road with me? If I if I put a band together, he's a, a drummer. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he started his career in 1950, right, with Professor Longhair. Oh, down in oh, New Orleans. He was, yeah. he's a New Orleans yeah. guy. Yeah, so he's got that anyway, swing. So, got that swing. So Charles thought about it for a minute, and then he said, "You know, I, I don't think I'd do it for anybody else, but for you, I'll do it." So we put together this power trio, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, John Hammond and the Screaming Nighthawks. Is that what it was? Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, we went to, uh, to um, well, 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 came out to the West Coast in 67, mm-hmm. played at the Avalon Ballroom with mm-hmm. uh, the Grateful Dead and all these other bands. Bill Graham presents? Uh, no, this was Ch- 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 Chet Helms. Okay. And, um, Before Bill Graham? Maybe? Uh, maybe Bill was still was at was out here, but I this was yeah. the, the offer that I had. Yeah, so I uh, eventually played a lot of gigs for Bill. Yeah, what a guy. Yeah, he was the first guy that ever gave me a bonus. Oh, yeah, two hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> I, I was in heaven. I you was, played the Fillmore a lot. Yeah, I played the Fillmore East and West. Yeah, um, but that was in later in the sixties. Uh, later in the sixties. Yeah. All right. So, wait, tell me about this trio. So you guys oh, get out so there. Charles Otis, yeah. and Herman Pittman. Played the bass on some some of the dates. Yeah. Other, other times we used Lee Collins. Other times, um, um, Sherman Holmes. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Charles knew everybody. I mean, uh-huh. everywhere we went, if if we came to L.A., we had a horn section. Uh huh. If we went to, you know, I mean, he knew everybody everywhere. It was outrageous. Uh, so, and that's it's nice to go that loose with that music. So oh, you man. can sure you can, anyway. It's like jump in kind of music, yeah, right? It wasn't, but you know, it was like my call. Yeah. And Charles had enough respect for me to you know say okay. Yeah. Listen to what he says. And, yeah. And uh, I, it was, you know, I mean, Charles was a real mentor to me in so many ways. He was so professional. And he had toured with Lloyd Price and Little Richard. Uh, he had toured with all these great New Orleans bands, you yeah. know, and had done the whole Chitlin circuit, you know. And I mean, he was an amazing. And that's what led guy. to Source Point. That's what led to Source Point, and it was supposed to be produced by Lieber and Stoller. Yeah. One afternoon at Columbia, and they said, "John, we're out of here. I can't work with these people." With who? With Columbia oh, Records. Okay. So all of a sudden, it was in my lap. And I had uh, Charles on drums and Billy Nichols on the bass, uh-huh. and that was it. That was the the. And you produced it, yeah. I I had to. I mean, we had already booked the it's dates. Probably the best thing, man. It was great, man. We had so much fun. It was so much. <laughs> I fun. I can't imagine that record if Lieber and Stoller produced it. Oh, it would have been great. They, they had a. a but it's pretty keyboard pretty... player named SQ Reader who was going to be on the show. Uh huh. SQ Reader. Yeah. And he was a protege of Little Richard. Uh huh. And he was out there, but he didn't play. W- w- no, he didn't play because uh, Mike and Jerry said no. Anyway, um, good record though. Oh yeah, Columbia Solid. did nothing with it, nothing for it. I think they were they didn't know what to do. Is that you, wasn't that your dad's label? Yeah, but uh, he wasn't know, around. It was awkward, uh, you know. Yeah, very, very awkward. I I got the thing because I got signed to Columbia because Arthur Penn yeah had asked me to do the music for Little Big Man. Great job on that, by the and, way. Um, that's what I, in order to do it I had to sign with Columbia wow so I signed with Columbia and uh, f- f- flew out here to do the yeah. uh, 
I mean, I, I played live to the track. I mean, to the that was uh, just you and a film. guitar, though. Was it? Yeah. Was that a national you used? On uh, that? I used a national on some tunes and and the other uh, uh, on my my Gibson. Yeah, I and, remember uh, seeing that. Taunting man, that's like <coughs> way before Bry Cooter did. What a movie! Oh yeah, man. man, I was so impressed. It's a great. Movie. I it's said great. to Arthur Penn, I said, you know, the music I'm playing didn't yeah. exist, and he said. Doesn't matter; it'll work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Arthur Penn was incredible. I, it I didn't really, exist. That yeah. he's like, it'll work. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, because he had done uh, uh, Bonnie, Bonnie Clyde, and yeah. Clyde with uh, Flat and Scruggs, and that that worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I remember that the opening scene with the you know, with Hoffman and the old man. Turn that thing on. Yeah, right. Turn that thing on. Right, man. Yeah. Oh, so that's how you got into Columbia. Yeah, that's how through I got the into, side kind. Yeah. So we, we made Source Point. And they and, just sat on it. And you had yeah. one of those. You have one of those gold top to Yes, I did. It sounds so fucking good on that oh, record, man. man. I had so much fun making that record. Anyway, uh, the band was together. We were touring. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we weren't getting any promotion. I was not making bucks, whatever. Right. Um, we, we'd go out on the road for a month and come back. Uh, I mean, I'd be broke. Yeah. Because uh, I wanted everybody to get paid. With and, that band. Yeah. The Source Point band. So I I did some tours solo. I went back to playing mm-hmm. solo and I was on tour with Delaney and Bonnie. Oh, yeah. And uh, and Delaney kept saying, man, I love to produce a record on you. Yeah. So um, I went up to, to Columbia and... and uh, Clive Davis had just become the 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 guy the guy at yeah. Columbia, and uh, I said to him, um, uh, Delaney and Bonnie want to produce an album on me, and Clive looked at me and said, "Who?" Uh. And they had the number one and number two singles on the Billboard charts. Yeah, I said Delaney and Bonnie, and I showed him that. He says, "Oh, oh, yeah." So anyway, we I came back out here and we made um, uh, I'm satisfied. Yeah, that that was number two for Columbia, and um, and Delaney said to me, "Man, if this ain't a hit record, I'm gonna kiss your ass on Broadway." <laughs> That's what he said to me, <laughs> and Clive Davis was so impressed with Delaney and Bonnie that he signed them, bought everything they ever did for Atlantic. Gave him a, a bonus check for a quarter of a million dollars. I know this because Delaney showed me the check. Yeah. And they did nothing for me. Uh. And they went in the s- studio with Delaney and Bonnie, and a month later they got divorced, and then nothing ever happened. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. They keep right. the money? What's that? Well, I'm sure they kept the money. <laughs> but anyway, that, that was the end of that. And then the third record I made for Columbia was with Michael Bloomfield and Dr. John. Oh, yeah, I have that record. Triumvirate. How do you feel about that record? I thought it was really good. There were some cuts on it I thought could have been, you know, hit records or whatever. Yeah. But never got promoted because every record label, Columbia, Atlantic, everybody got investigated by the FBI for, for payola. Oh, yeah. Bad time. So there was no promotion, no nothing. We, we had just taped. Oh, um, heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a, a bummer for me. And... um so I went uh, uh, from Columbia. I went to Capricorn. Yeah, because I had got, gotten to know uh, Dwayne Almond uh, really well. He 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 had uh, recorded an album, my my last one for Atlantic, 
Which Good. one? Uh, it was called Southern Fried. Oh, and he's on that. Yeah, man, is he I gotta, ever? I got to get that record. And we got, um, oh, damn, we it. got we got to be really good friends, and and Dwayne was phenomenal. He's he's another guy that was sort of had the gift, right? Kind of awesome, touched. awesome. I've worked with some great guitar players. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, so I, I, Dwayne had died. Uh, I had gone to. Uh, uh, Capricorn because he said oh you know we got a really good deal down there so I went down to Macon and I made an album called Can't Beat the Kid yeah uh, on Capricorn and then he died uh, no, no, Dwayne had died before. Already? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, this, but I, I had done gigs with the Almond Brothers, sure. and I had signed up with uh, the Paragon Agency in Macon. Yeah. And uh, that was uh, not good for me. Yeah. I opened for Wet Willie and Charlie Daniels <laughs> yeah. and Marshall Tucker and all these boogie bands, you know. And it didn't work. I got booed off the stage oh, at really? the time. Oh, fuck you, man. We want the Almond Brothers. Yeah. We want da, 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 yeah, da. Yeah. So it was one of those. Ugh, gulpers. It was tough. And uh, I was on a gig in in, um, in Vancouver, B.C. Uh, with John Hyatt. Uh-huh. And um, uh, J- John Hyatt's uh, a- agent was this guy, Mike Kappas. Yeah. And, um, and he had just formed a, an agency called Rosebud. Right. And uh, so I went to get paid after my show and... Uh, there was a double contract, and uh, I got screwed out of a lot of money. And Mike was there. He watched the whole deal go down. That was my last show for, for Paragon Agency. <laughs> yeah. And Mike said to me, listen, if you ever want to work with s- someone who actually likes what you do, I'm the guy. Yeah. And a week later, I called him up, and I said, listen, I'm ready. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so I was with Mike with for... 36 years. Oh, no He kidding. booked more than 4,000 shows for me. That's great. And uh, all over the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, the Rosebud Agency was just incredible. And they're no longer? No, he he, he closed the agency about three years ago, four years ago. Uh-huh. And um, he had done so much. I mean, he had, you know, he did uh, Muddy Waters and uh-huh. Willie Dixon and oh, no Luther Owls and yeah, all these yeah. incredible blues and roots players. Los Lobos, John Hyatt, Robert Cray. I mean, Mike Kappas was the guy. He was really wonderful. So anyway... uh, He retired. Yeah, he basically... Although he's still very active and he does, you know... Um, he, he's got his hands in in a lot of pies. What was it? What was your relationship with Muddy? Did you have one? Oh yeah, I worked a lot of gigs with with uh, Muddy. In fact, I got M- M- Muddy to sign with the Rosebud Agency. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean there was another just king of kings. He was oh, he true. and Wolf were like unbelievable. So different too, kind of. Yeah, right? totally different. And they weren't the best of friends. No. <laughs> well, they were fighting each yeah, other. Yeah. Well, they were you know competitive. Back in the day, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, the, the Chicago chess years, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was, you know, everybody wanted to to be the guy. Yeah. My, my wife, Marla, I, I had met Marla in 1989, and yeah. uh, we got together in 1990, and she saw me through all of these uh, years of sort of being rediscovered, put on the map again, and um, and she was basically took care of a lot of the uh, uh, production stuff. You know, she kept uh-huh. track of all the things that I did well or, the, you know. Oh, yeah? Wasn't so perfect. Well, why don't you do that one again, John? You yeah. Know? Oh, no kidding. Oh, she's she's got ears. 
big time. And when these periods, though, because like I mean, you've done, you've put out like what thirty or thirty-five, 35 records, albums, thirty-five yeah. albums. You like seem to do one every year or so. You tour your ass off. Yeah, I yeah. Might, I have to assume that you, you you know over the years you got a good following. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. it's going as well as it ever did for yeah. me. I mean, maybe better, but I'm not playing as many gigs. I, sure. I'll be seventy-five. Yeah, yeah, and you put it, you put it all in. Yeah, you know, I mean, no, I'm still having fun. You know, yeah. I mean, this is still good, but it's, you know, it's something that I I gotta pace myself. Otherwise, I'm just gonna, uh, yeah, melt or something. But, I don't it, know. but in the downtime, when the time, you didn't seem to get bitter, did you? You know, life is is weird, and I knew that from the beginning. You know, when I when I told my <laughs> father to all this is what I was gonna do. Yeah. He said, this is a big mistake. And, you know, I mean, the business is the business, you know. It's really rough. But I got to imagine, like, you know, having that father and then, like, knowing Bob Dylan and then knowing your dad signed Bob Dylan. <laughs> it's, there's got to be a moment where you're like, Ugh. Oh, man. Well, listen, <laughs> I'm not my father. Yeah, and, uh, sure. But at the same time, you just got to stand back and say, holy cow, what a guy. Yeah. I mean, he discovered Count Basie and Billy yeah. Holiday, Lester Young, Charlie Christian. He put the band together for Benny Goodman, right. oh, who awesome. married his sister. No kidding. He was Uncle Benny. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then to go on from there, I mean, he, she, he, he discovered Aretha Franklin uh-huh. and George Benson. Uh, God, he kept going. For oh man! And then Leonard Cohen and r- did the last. Uh, 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 I mean, the put Pete Seeger back on the map, right? And then um, you know Dylan and uh, Billy Holiday, right? Yeah, and Billy Springste- Holiday, and Springsteen, Springsteen. Like hello, it's crazy. And um, oh yeah, but the business is so rough and weird. I mean, my dad had a terrible stroke, you know, and he was like really hurting my father nick never took a royalty from any of the artists he produced uh-huh. ever oh no kidding and he took a salary from columbia and that was it he never really that was and it, i mean it wasn't even much and so here he is sick on his you know in bed and columbia wouldn't pay for his hospital expenses oh my god and it took bruce springsteen to come and say if you don't take care of john hammond's medical i'm out of here wow and they did and they finally did you know but it took that no kidding that's the business you know it's like it's rough and it's and he tried to warn you he did he said this is a big mistake but you know i mean this was in me to do and i did he did you have any sense if he listened to your records or liked your records oh yeah oh he did oh yeah no he he became an advocate for me i guess but in the background i never asked him for anything yeah but like but he, he got it. He got it. Oh, he did. He, he knew yeah. you were the real deal. Well, I don't know if he knew if I was the real deal, but he, he didn't <laughs> want me to starve to death. <laughs> no, he was he, he was an amazing human being. And what what about, uh, what's your relationship with Waits? Because that's a beautiful record you did, oh, of the God. Waits songs. Tom, Tom produced that album. Yeah. I mean, uh, with Whose my idea wife, Marla. Was that? It was Marla's idea. Oh, yeah. I, I was... Um, Tom had asked me to to do some stuff on his uh, Mule Variations album. You played harp, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we're hanging out in Northern California, and um, my wife Marla and Tom's wife Kathleen were hanging out. And this was the the studio was very near where Tom lives, uh, the Prairie Sun Studio. Yeah. And Marla said, "Listen." 
What do you think the idea of Tom producing an album on John? He could be home every night, take care of the kids, you know. Yeah. And Kathleen thought, you know, that would be a great idea. <laughs> so all of a sudden we, you know, it was in our laps to do something and uh, out came Wicked Grin and it was uh, the best-selling record of any that I've ever done. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's still selling, you know. It's great. Uh, I was uh, in L.A. about three years ago. I was up for a Grammy. For which record? Uh, oh, for Rough and Tough? Rough and Tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it didn't win and whatever. So, But uh, Bug Music was uh, w- was having a party, and I went over there with my wife, Marla, and, and we're hanging out, and there's, you know, uh, T-Bone Burnett and all these sure. you know, guys who I'd met over the years, and... And there's Jeff Bridges, and Jeff Bridges walks right up to me and says, man, Wicked Grin is one of my favorite records of all time. (laughs) And and Marla Marla looks up at him and says, you'll always be Starman to me. (laughs) (laughs) And she nailed it. That's hilarious. Uh, He's a player. Oh, yeah. He's, I mean, that movie was phenomenal oh it was really good what was it called again that heart some crazy heart uh, crazy it, heart yeah. yeah that was something huh you you could see that guy mm-hmm. you know that guy we do you feel like you get the respect though yeah it seems like the blues community loves you and that you get the respect you get hey, the hall of fame i'm in the blues hall of fame yeah. who knew <laughs> and the, you've certainly gotten nominated for grammys a lot it's, i'm sad yeah. i'm sorry you didn't win one i did win one for for a collection yeah yeah um back in 83 yeah is uh, the guy handed it to me says, if the horn falls off, it can be re- replaced for $75. <laughs> That's what he said. That's what he said. As okay. he's handing it to you? <laughs> and what? And you did the uh, the search for Robert Johnson. That right. Was, yeah. That, that was that was intense. Yeah. Uh, Mississippi, Alabama. He went down there? Tennessee. Yeah. Texas. Yeah. yeah. This was an English film crew that mm. had really done their homework. Uh-huh. Uh, um, and you were, were you the host or the guide? Or I was you? the host guide yeah. on yeah. camera, no script. Yeah. Uh, Chris Hunt was the producer for, uh, it, it was for Channel 4 in, yeah. in England. And um, Kaz Gorham was the director. And we went to all these places where they had been a year before and, and lo- uh, scouted out locations mm-hmm. and people. Mm-hmm. Um and there I was on camera with these guys, and I <laughs> didn't know what to say half the time, but it came off. And to, You just engaged with it? Yeah, I yeah. got right into it, man, because I, I realized it, it wasn't going to be about selling his soul to the devil or something right. stupid. You know, yeah. It was really who he was and where he traveled. And Did you know all that stuff? I knew bits and pieces, but uh, I found out way more than I ever thought I'd know. Did it move you? Yeah, big time. Um there were guys that that had gone to school with Robert, uh, old girlfriends of his. No kidding. I mean, feeling connected like that was like really intense. Um, did you, Did you ever hear those um, those those ones that they slowed down? Did you like the songs? Like somebody said that they were. Do you like I? So I went down. Somebody to told me that I don't believe it. Yeah, I don't. But believe whatever. It. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, yeah. It's you weird. know everybody was going to fool around with stuff that can never be re- really corroborated. So sure, it's just like it is what it is, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those ones. Those were the 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 songs. The 
the recordings that move me yeah I mean, big time it's it's interesting to me because like i listen to even all the records that you do all up to the present up to like 2014 is that there's there's honesty to your blues that you know i don't hear anywhere else and you're like one of the few guys doing it do you feel like it's a responsibility you just love doing it? i just love doing it. <laughs> I, I feel so lucky you know to be still happening and yeah and rocking and my wife marla is like somebody that really helps make it happen i'm i'm a real luddite when it comes to computers and uh-huh. smartphones and stuff i'm i'm a dummy oh yeah and she's right on top of it and takes care of stuff that you know i oh good I, yeah I'm, I'm a lucky guy where are you living now i live in jersey city okay we, we've been there for 22 years and what happened to your gold top uh i gave it to, i gave it to a guy named Jimmy Thackeray, who played with a band called the Nighthawks, uh-huh. and um, haven't seen it since. I was told, "Man, that thing is worth a hundred thousand dollars." A nineteen fifty nine gold Les Paul. It That's was, a reissue, a new reissue yeah, from Gibson. Those, those are beautiful. Yeah, what's that other one? You that the, the that other weird Gibson that you had on the cover of uh, you're like in the grass. Oh right, that, with uh, that corner. It, it it was a guitar that belonged to Felix Cavalier at at Atlantic. We had one afternoon to do this uh, photo shoot, and I didn't have my guitar with me. And uh, oh, why use this one? And, uh, it's a wild looking guitar. What was is, that? Thing? It's a Barney Kessel model. I oh think. okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, look, man, it was great talking to you. Oh, Mark, what a pleasure. All right, folks, I hope that was interesting. Uh, Go listen to some John Hammond. It'll blow you away. And don't forget, if you want a signed copy of Waiting for the Punch, go to podswag.com slash punch. That's P-O-D-S-W-A-G dot com slash punch. And if you're in Seattle, come on out to Third Place Books in Seward Park on Saturday, November 11th at 7 p.m. for our final book event of the year. I can't play any guitar right now because it's too early in the morning. Boomer lives!